I'm going to invite Emily now to, to read our, our passage this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please do open that now. I'm going to read verses 17 to 32. Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have not heard, you have heard that it is said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are an, if you are an offering, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you, be, you may be thrown into prison. Therefore, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to commit adultery with her in his heart, then, sorry, <laughs> if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It is said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her cert um, certif a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thank you, Emily. Phil, thank you. Over to you. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks, Emily. Now, when I was in year eight, uh, I had a change of geography teachers halfway through the year. Uh, Mr. Solomon was the first teacher, 
His motto was, keep it simple, stupid. That probably told you what he thought of us. Uh, but the first thing he did was uh, made us write that motto on the inside of our geography workbook. I, I really loved him, by the way. The second geography teacher was Mr. Stapp. And in our first lesson with him, he noticed that one of us had Mr. Solomon's motto written on our geography workbooks. And then he made us cross it all out because he had an entirely different approach uh, to teaching geography. Out with the old and in with the new. And we see this so often in governments and regimes and organizations that are forever being changed. A CEO retires, a new government is elected, a new head teacher takes the school in a different direction. Now, the Sermon on the Mount has the potential to be one of those moments where everything changes. You see, for the Jewish people, for hundreds of years, they'd listened to God by reading and obeying the scriptures, God's word. And those scriptures were God's authority to God's people. They also prophesied that God's Messiah would come one day and make all things new. And the Messiah was who Jesus claimed to be. God's Messiah with God's authority. So here's the thought at the back of everybody's mind. If the Messiah is come, bringing a new way of doing things, what happens to the old way, the law? Was this sermon the beginning of a new regime, the beginning of a new authority? Was God's word being thrown out the window? Another case of out with the old and in with the new. These were important questions uh, for the Jews in Jesus' day. And even today, many Christians are asking the same thing. Has Jesus come with a new authority to do away with the Old Testament law? Because if the answer is yes, then we don't need the Old Testament, do we? If the answer is yes, then there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. If the answer is yes, then Jesus is setting a precedent. It's possible for a new revelation, a new prophet, a new authority to take the place of all that is gone before. And that's why we need this second half of Matthew chapter 5. Because in, it, in these verses, Jesus tells us the answer is no. He's not a new authority that will do away with the Old Testament. Not the law, not the prophets. Instead, what he goes on in the next part of Matthew chapter 5 is to re-emphasize the importance of the law, to underline the beauty of the prophets and clear up the debate about what he's come to do. And even more than that, this is the beauty of it. He teaches us to understand the law and the prophets in, in, in a beautiful way and to apply it, to live it out in everyday life. You see, many Christians today are confused about how we relate to Old Testament scriptures, particularly the law. You see, on the one hand, some Christians are very concerned about obeying the law, and so much so that they end up relying on that obedience to give them security with God. Others, and this is becoming more common in modern Christianity, others completely disregard the law and choose their own moral standards, and they insist they're meeting them. Still others just bed themselves down in shameless mediocrity. I'll redefine God's law so it fits my comfortable world. 
And often this kind of misunderstanding of the law ends in either a guilt-fueled legalism. You see that often in the Catholic Church. Or a reckless, abandoned disobedience. You see that often in the free church. Or that shameless mediocrity. I'll carry on doing God my way as long as God doesn't impinge or ask too much of me. It ends in Christians who are either, uh, either, either moribund or enslaved by the law or enslaved by lawlessness. Rather than freed by the king who has come to live out his word and to help us do it too. So we need this section of the Sermon on the Mount to help us read God's law correctly as something positive, not negative, as something that gives us freedom to live real life, to live who Jesus has made us and to do that with a radical passion for the king who has come. That's why we need this section of Matthew 5. So we're going to look at it in three points. And the first is, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Look with me at verses 17. Verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It, it, just in case, if you're unfamiliar with how the Bible is put together, it's got two parts to it. There's the Old Testament, which was written before Jesus came, and the New Testament, which was written after Jesus came. And the first four books of the New Testament are biographies of Jesus. Now, the first five books of the Old Testament were called the Law. And the rest of the Old Testament was referred to as the Prophets. Those were the parts that contained prophecies about the coming Messiah, Jesus. So when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. And his claim here is that rather than getting rid of the Old Testament, he's come to fulfill everything written in them. In other words, he's the one, about, uh, the one whom it's all about. That's why he says in verse 18, for truly I tell you, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's a great, joyful declaration. The scriptures are important to Jesus. They are God's word. They are the way that God has revealed his character to the world. So rather than replacing them, Jesus has said he's come to uphold them and fulfill them and complete them um, uh, so that they're not, not the smallest part of them will be proved wrong or inaccurate. It's a beautiful beautiful direction. This is not a change of regime. What Jesus is saying is that the law and the prophets reveal God's will, his authority, his character, his consistency, his grace, his generosity. And if we read the Old Testament in any other way, we'd misunderstood it. That's what he's saying. And similarly, if the God of the Old Testament, if we believe the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament, we've misunderstood it. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. That's why Jesus says in verse 19, look at it with me. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, on the one hand, if we belittle the Old Testament, then we don't understand it. And therefore, we don't understand 
salvation. We're the least in the kingdom. But the reverse is also true. If we listen to the Old Testament scriptures, we will understand who God is. We will get his character. We will revel in his salvation. And we will be called the greatest. Why? Because as verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's telling his disciples that access to the kingdom can only be through a greater righteousness than anything they've seen. Now, just to put that into context, they had been brought up looking at the Pharisees and saying, those guys are the bee's knees in righteousness. They set the bar of righteousness. We are lesser righteous people. They are the uber-righteous amongst us. But Jesus is deliberately provoking their, their cultural expectations. He's saying they're not righteous at all. They've misrepresented what it took to be right with God. But now here's the beauty. A new righteousness, a new rightness with God is on offer. One that would bring people into a true relationship with God. One that would bring them true righteousness. Now, if you've been listening to the series, of the, a series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, weeks ago you will remember uh, that I went on about a car called a Bugatti Veyron. Here's a picture. Here we go. Beautiful. Well done, tech team. Love it. Um, the, the picture of a Bugatti Veyron. Except this isn't one. Uh, this is a Honda Civic crudely panel-beaten to vaguely look like one. But it's trying its best. And if you didn't know what a Bugatti Veyron looked like, you might even believe that that is a very expensive car. But imagine, you, you, you come across it, you're looking at it and going, wow, Bugatti Veyron, oh, that's amazing. And then suddenly the real thing drives past, and here's my tech team. Oh, the real thing drives past. Well, hopefully we'll get that picture in a minute. And it reveals the Honda Civic as an imposter. A poor comparison that it really is. And in the same way, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. There it is. Thank you very much. That's a real Bugatti Veyron. That's the beautiful thing I've been going on about for months now, it seems. But do you see, Jesus has come to fulfill the law to teach the law in such a way that any previous attempts to explain it are exposed as frauds. And you know, even exposing our, our, our own fraudulentness, why? Because we read the law so wrong so often. We are frauds just like the Pharisees. So what Jesus does, is in, the next, in the rest of the passage, he picks out six examples where God's law has been misrepresented and messed up by our bad expectations and teachings. And for the rest of our time this morning, what we're going to do is just look at those first two, and we'll leave the third example of divorce for another time uh, when we can come back to it and look at the subject more widely. It just needs a whole, a whole morning on it, if I'm going to be honest. Um, and I don't want to just shoehorn it at the end of, of, of what Jesus says about those first two. So we'll, we'll look at the next three examples next week as well. And the first thing Jesus wants us to see is the spirit of the law. See the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, not just the letter of the law. That's our, first, that's our second point this morning. See the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Jesus starts off by pointing out 
the shallow cultural perception of sin. So look at verse 21 with me. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus starts by showing his disciples that the Pharisees had taken what was said in Exodus in the the Old Testament law and made it to mean something of their own. So they believed that the sixth commandment related to the action of killing and no more. They were teaching that if you took someone else's, if you never took someone else's life, you could stand before God and have never broken the sixth commandment. You could say to God, tick, thank you very much, I am not a murderer. But the problem with that interpretation was that they were seeing, they, they were seeking how to keep the letter of the law whilst ignoring the spirit of the law. And that's why Jesus says, but I tell you. That's why Jesus says, but I tell you, in verse 22, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus was pointing out that murder is not just about the action, it's about the heart. He wanted his disciples to see that the same dark thoughts and angers and frustrations that lie in all our hearts are at the same time the frustration behind each act of murder. There's no difference of heart. It means that just because we can restrain those emotions, it doesn't mean that we are not murderers. In our anger, when we call others fools or idiots, behind our thoughts is the heart bent on character assassination. And Jesus warns his disciples three times in these verses that God will call us account to that anger, for for that anger. Three times, verse 21 and 22. The fire, the, the judgment, the court the hell, there's accountability for our hearts. And listen, we've got to see that Jesus is showing how the Pharisees were misunderstanding the law. They were twisting the letter of the law to create an impression of righteousness that they controlled. But what Jesus wants us to see is that when we allow the Lord to speak to our hearts, it shows us the seriousness of our sin and our need for salvation. So rather than believing that we've never murdered and are therefore righteous before God, Jesus wants us to see that we are murderers. For example, every morning, I don't know about you, but we get up believing, I've done this so many times, oh, I'm not a murderer. And yet how quickly we, we like to see people being taken down in the media, on social media, on WhatsApp, or on Facebook. How unguarded our comments are. And that's why in verse 23 to 26, Jesus doubly urges his disciples to seek reconciliation rather than commit to hypocritical worship. In other words, if we are to truly understand the sixth commandment for what it really is, we will realize the shame in our anger and repent quickly of it. And notice, interestingly, the direction of responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the offended person to point out the offense. But rather, in both instances, 
Jesus says it's the offender's responsibility to seek reconciliation. Gospel-centered reconciliation is about seeing our own offenses, examining our own hearts, seeing where we have offended and hurt and wounded and destroyed and committed assassinations and going to seek reconciliation quickly. It makes it so different to the religion of the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed themselves faultless. I'm not a murderer, but I'll destroy that person on, in the media. They were trapped in their hypocrisy. But Jesus has come to set us free from that. And I want to see, to see the beauty of the freedom. This is the opposite of a revenge. This is seeking forgiveness when we have offended. Now, now I imagine one or two of you might be saying this. The problem with that, Phil, is all that Jesus is doing is adding to what the Pharisees have said. So the Pharisees say, you can wake up in the morning and say, I've not murdered. But Jesus says, you've got to wake up in the morning and go, I'm not angry. Isn't all Jesus doing is, is growing the burden? Well, it would be the case if we didn't see these, what Jesus is saying here in the context of the Beatitudes. They are so, so, so important at shaping what we're reading right now. Because if we're not careful, we end up saying, Pharisee, Phil has just told me not to be angry. How, how much harder is that? But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who see themselves as the worst sinners in the world and who need to repent. He says, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, those who have seen, they have been shown such mercy. Who have realized the reconciliation that Christ has given. That once we were enemies with God, once we wanted God dead, we shook our fists at him, we stuck two fingers up at him in defiance, and we were absolutely wanting him out of our lives, and he came into our lives and brought us near and showed us his love. That is reconciliation. That is mercy. And therefore, how can we not show mercy? How can we not seek reconciliation? How can we not be the merciful and the peaceful? There is the spirit of the law. Isn't it just amazing? Doesn't it just shape what Jesus says here? So if we can never say sorry because we can't see our offense, or if we think admitting our mistakes is a weakness, we've not understood the Beatitudes. And can I encourage you, go back and read them again and again and again until you realize the spirit of the Beatitudes that shines out in the spirit of the law. We cannot read what Jesus says here without understanding who we are and understanding what God has done for us. Why? Because it brings out the spirit of the law. The law brings life. It brings peace. It brings mercy, it brings forgiveness. Why? Because it exposes our sin for what it is and our need for a saviour. There is the beauty of it. And once we understand that salvation, how can we not, how can we not seek reconciliation? How can we not do it? 
we have been shown peace. So when it comes to parenting, why? How important it is to say sorry for the sins we commit against our children. Like when we lose our tempers or don't keep our promises. Or when we insist on them thinking that we are never wrong. Why it's important. We've got to model the forgiveness shown to us. We've got to model reconciliation that Jesus teaches us here. It's important that our children know and understand that we are the worst sinners on the planet. Because our children are the ones who see us as the worst sinners on the planet. They see our faults. They see our lack of forgiveness. They see us laugh. They see us cry. They see us in all our faults as well as our love. So our responsibility is to say sorry. Be quick to reconcile. Why? Because we understand the spirit of the law. It shows us our sin and our need for salvation and the richness of the work that Christ has done in our hearts and therefore how can we not, not, not seek out this reconciliation that Christ uh, with us, if Christ has brought us near to God. So let's not be slow. Let's walk in the freedom of the law. Let's not be slow to tell others what we've done to them and seek reconciliation. You know, the last point here that Jesus, point, that, that Jesus mentions is this. Don't distance yourself from the consequence of sin. Don't distance yourself from the consequence of sin. Uh, Jesus continues by showing how our lust breaks the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Look with me at verse 27. It says this, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And again, Jesus says, uh, begins this section by showing his disciples had the, how the Pharisees had reduced the seventh commandment to the act of sex outside marriage. And again, they were under the impression that as long as you... Didn't actually, uh, you didn't actually commit uh, adultery, you, you were not guilty of the action itself. The commandment didn't apply to them, uh, and they were perfectly innocent as far as the seventh commandment was concerned. Uh, again, they'd just taken the letter of the law and reduced it to a, sin, uh, a single act. They'd nullified it. Isn't that interesting? Because the heart of sin is nullifying God's authority over us. Then Jesus says, I tell you, again, his authority, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let's be clear, these verses don't prohibit the normal attractions that exist between men and women, but they do highlight the deep-seated lusts which consume and devour. So rather than trying to justify sin by nullifying it, Jesus speaks his piercing words. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it brings out the shame in all of us, doesn't it? Jesus tells his disciples that the commandment goes further than merely the act of adultery. It applies to our hearts and our thoughts as well. And perhaps it's because sexual sin can be so destructive to a culture 
that Jesus exaggerates the remedy to combat it. Look with me at verse 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's a double emphasis. He's saying that the eyes that lust should be plucked out, the hand that commits itself to stealing another, person, another person's spouse should be cut off. And the point of this exaggeration is this. We deal drastically with our sin. We distance ourselves from the heart. We're not to pamper it. We're not to flirt with it. We're not to enjoy nibbling around the edges. We're to hate it and crush it and dig it out. Why? Because we have been reconciled to God. It's serious. But it's also linked to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. That's That's the crux of this. Because our lust exposes exposes our lack of contentment with what God has given us. Our lust exposes exposes our desire to get rid of of what God has given us and, and, and grab what we can and make ourselves the king, the ruler, the person with all the stuff, with all the girls on our arms or boys who love us. But the link to the Beatitudes is this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Rather than having this this desire and this longing for more stuff and for women or men, actually Jesus says, I have come so that you may live in the freedom of hungering and thirsting after a new righteousness, for they will be filled. Your true contentment and joy will be found in Christ as you learn the joy of the love that he has lavished upon you and seek it more than you seek your own satisfaction. Girls, realize that lust is also dreaming about the gorgeous bloke walking, uh, walking you down the aisle so that you ignore the, the, the godly bloke sitting the other side of the church. Ladies, praise God for your husband as he is and don't resent him for not being like the successful stud at the school gate. Men, Job 31.1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman and memorize it. Use covenant eyes. Set the family filter on the computer at maximum and get your wife or a trusted friend to set the password. Cut it out. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, not your own selfishness. Stop coveting. Why? Because Christ has released us into a new hunger and thirst which will be filled as we seek it. Why? Because Christ has promised it by his word and by his own blood. We might be indulging in sinful thoughts this morning, but let's drastically deal with our lack of contentment and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus says it's better to humbly confess sin and ask for help than to suffer the rampaging effects of -of out-of-control lust. It might be this morning that you're wondering where that leads you if you don't know whether you belong to Jesus' kingdom. Well, let me firstly point out to you that Jesus is not damning us here like the Pharisees were damning their, their culture. He's warning us as a loving parent, warns his children about serious dangers. 
but he's also guiding us in a new truth, in how to live out the law in a rich and vibrant way as children of his kingdom. He's clear, isn't he? We can't expect to be right with God if we're not right with God. And we mustn't fool ourselves like the Pharisees by thinking, because I can tick off the list of things that I've done right today, I'm right with God. No. Jesus says we're all sinners. The law shows that. But Jesus is a great saviour. The law shows that. And he invites us to walk with him and hold his hand and to live out those beatitudes, to live out his law, to live in his kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we are not alone. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not alone. Here's the beauty. God the Holy Spirit resides in us. And as we read his law, as we read those beatitudes again and again and again and realize our sinfulness and realize our joyful salvation that Christ has given us, we are merciful. We are poor in spirit. We are peacemakers. We are the light. We are salt. And as we walk with Christ in this, it will become more and more obvious. As we walk with him in his law, it will become more and more rich and beautiful and real to us.